as well. And so, um, if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, we're going to continue um, what, I, what I hope and trust has been a very encouraging uh, study, uh, hopefully very instructive. Um, but remember the first week we entered this book, we, we really prayed that God would uh, help us hear and see and love and feel uh, better and uh, more attuned to God's heart. And I, and I really pray that that happens this morning as well. Um, and thank you, Jerry, for your prayer. And we just trust the Spirit of God to, to lead us. Um, theologian A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about God? I mean, if we project God as smaller than our problems and obstacles, you know what we'll do? We'll act first and pray later. I mean, if we see a God who's distant from our everyday lives, the twin missiles of worry and fear, they'll pummel us. Because what we think about God is incredibly important. We'll we'll miss the bigness. And as we look at this passage, we're going to come across two scenes. And we're going to sense... Jesus' presence and the the bigness of his presence. And we find in him a person we can trust. But in order to find that, we really need to see. I don't know about you, but it's sometimes in the daily routine of our private devotions, our weekly ritual of worship. The incredible moments in our Savior's life often become old hand. Worn out, they, they lose their luster. And when, those ha- when that happens, those moments, they, they cease to be sacred. And consequently, deep in our spirit, we no longer take off our sandals, fall on our faces. And we forget something big's at stake. Wonder. Because wonder's a prerequisite to worship. And when we lose wonder, we lose that dynamic that brings us to our knees. And our Lord's life was full of moments, incredible moments that took people's breath away. Mouths fell in amazement. We've never seen anything like this, they would say. Learning to see. Let's do that. Verses 11 through 16. Luke chapter 5. Let's read this account. I'll start with verse 12. While he was in the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would, with, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now we see here God's heart. We see his bigness, his greatness in this encounter. Now as we look at this encounter, we start off verse 12. We're told that he's in one of the cities. Just There comes a man, and Luke the doctor wants us to know he was full of leprosy. This isn't just a little scab here or a little scab there. 
You see, leprosy, it begins with little specks on the eyelids and on the palms of the hand. And then it spreads over the body. It, it bleaches the hair white often. It casts a cadaverous pallor in the body. The, the, the body kind of becomes gray, almost morgue-like would settle over the individual. Crusting it with scales and, and, and the body would erupt with sores all over. But that's just what happens on the surface. Penetrating the skin, the, the disease, it's kind of like a moth. It eats its way through the weave of nerves, through the body's tissues. Soon the body becomes numb, numb to the pain. There's sensory deprivation. A toe can break and it will no longer register pain. A finger could break and they would sense nothing. And the break would worsen and soon infection would get into it. Leprosy was a horrible, horrible condition. And as horrible as that is, it really wasn't the worst thing about leprosy. William Barclay says, starting with a small spot, it eats away at the flesh until the wretched sufferer was left with only a stump of a hand or a leg. It was literally a living death. But worse than that, if you can imagine, it was a social stigma. Because leprosy brought one thing, isolation. Loneliness. As a matter of fact, we read in the Old Testament, when a leper came close towards people, he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, and warn the people so they could stay away from him. Think about that. As a matter of fact, in this society, the Jewish religious leaders associated leprosy with sin. So in essence, when someone came, a leper came and said, unclean, unclean, what they were really saying in the religious mind was, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Stay away. Let that sink in. There's not a person in this room who, would, who couldn't have walked in this morning and said that, right? Unclean. All of us would say that. I'm unclean, unclean. That's what, in the religious mind, they were proclaiming. What would you think of that? That would be A, awkward. But B, when they heard somebody proclaim that, they scattered. Wouldn't that stink? I mean, it's bad enough to have that, but to, to have people run away from you. Your family. They would become ceremonial unclean. Think about it. Let, let's see for a moment what was this like. According to Leviticus 13, 50, 45 and 46, he was to dwell alone in a habitation outside the camp. He was banished from society, exiled from home resulting, I'm sure, in psychological consequences, which were as serious as the physical. The disease grabbed the man's body and probably grabbed his heart. I love hugs. I'm a hugger. This man didn't know a hug. He couldn't know a hug. Think about when he walked down the street, people kept their distance. Mothers covered the eyes of their children. Doctors shook their heads and religious leaders pointed their fingers in judgment. That was his life. Now if you look at verse 12, the end of the verse, and, and he comes and begged him. You might want to write in the margin, desperate. Desperation. 
in a desperate lunge of faith, he does the unthinkable. He drew near. Maybe he's trembling with excitement, we're not sure. But he dares to do what he would never do with any other rabbi. He draws near. He comes near to Jesus. Falling in the dust, he speaks probably with a trembling voice, and he says, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. There's no bargaining, there's no presumption. We, we just get a glimpse of faith. He saw in Jesus he, what little he probably knew about Jesus. He thought, he's the answer to my condition. Notice the man's concern, though. He doesn't ask to be healed. I think that's telling. He doesn't say, heal me. He doesn't say, I want to be healed. He says, I want to be clean. It's a step beyond healing. It's one thing to be healed. He wants more than that. He wants to be reunited to the community, to his family. And that cannot happen unless he's clean. And so that's what he asks for. That's telling. Consider his life up to this point. I mean, he's lived without hope. He's lived without the simple joys of life, being smiled at, greeted on the street, buying fresh fruit in the market, getting up to work, fishing with a friend. I wonder how long it's been since he had a hug or a handshake, a pat on the back. When was the last time someone rubbed his shoulders, wiped a tear from his eye, or, or gave him a kiss? All those things we take for granted. You know, what's interesting, believe it or not, I thought about this because I had my mind last week. It struck me, uh, some of you grandparents had your grandkids with you, hugging them, loving on them. Think for a second, grandparents, what if you couldn't touch them? What if you couldn't even get close to them because of your condition? Wouldn't it be horrible? Yet this is what this man went through. I, I hope you can learn to see what this guy's going through. Now verse 13 is powerful. Jesus stretched out his hand. Guess what he did? Touched him. He's unclean. And that's, I mean, Luke puts that in there for a reason. So you and I would, would pick up on something. That we would see something. Jesus saying to him, I love you. I care. Sorry you've had to go through this, and I want to help. And he touches him. Look at the compassion. No one's touched this guy in years. No one dared. But think about this. The only one who touches him, who dares to touch him, was a God who came down to this earth, who would be the last one we would expect to touch him is the first one to touch him. It's almost like God came down and looked at humanity and said, you know what? I care. I came to touch the untouchables. I came to bring a refreshment of my love to the parched lips of humanity. That's why I've come. And he touches the untouchables and all through Luke, and he's still touching the untouchables. He touched me and a lot of you can testify how he touched your life when you thought nobody could or would. Now, immediately we're told, the text tells us, Jesus stretched out his hand, verse 13, touched him saying, I will, I'm willing, 
be clean. And immediately, just as quick as you can wipe dirt off your arm, he was clean, he was healed. Now, if you're in this guy's shoes, you know what you're doing right away, don't you? You're looking around, you're, feel my toes, I feel my, this is, you know. So you can imagine, right? I mean, you're starting to check it out, make sure this is pretty, is this really what I is going? I, you know, I, I knew he could do it. I thought he could do it, but he did it. And he's starting to feel the effects of it. That, at least that's what I would be doing. And I wonder how he felt. I know what I would be doing. I'd be jumping up yelling, clean! Clean! I'm clean! That's what I would be doing. I don't know about you. But I would be jumping around. I would be ecstatic. However, Jesus probably knew that inclination. He says, well, slow down. Here's what you need to do. He charged him. So this is kind of a command. He says, go show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. Now, to understand that command, you would have to go back to Leviticus 13 and 14. In Israel's religion, the only one who could proclaim you unclean was a priest. Jesus says you need to go back to them. And, I, and at least this is my thought. I think the proof comes in two, two avenues. One proof is that Jesus healed him. The second proof is Jesus removing an obstacle, and that is the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He sends this man back to fulfill the law. So people couldn't accuse Jesus of bypassing the law. He encouraged this man to fulfill the law. So they were, the religious crowd would be left with one of two choices. They couldn't get hung up on his violating the law. It was either they reject him as the Christ or accept them. There was no third option here. Jesus wouldn't leave him a third option. It's one of those two, as a proof to them. So they'd have to do something with that proof. What a Savior. I see at the end of these days, which is usually it's about eight days. You had to bathe, you had to wash, you had to wash your clothes, and uh, usually it was about eight days before you were declared clean. I can imagine after those eight days, can you imagine he ran home. You know he did. You know he found if mom and dad were alive or if he had a child or wife or, or siblings, you know that's where he ran. There was a party in that house that night when he got home. I guarantee it. But I also see a man pooled, his eyes pooled with tears. Maybe unable to speak at times. It kind of gets stuck in his throat. You know how that is. Looking at his skin, telling everyone he sees, hugging family, hugging friends, high-fiving, telling them about a wonderfully gracious Savior who touched him and loved him when no one else would. That's what I hope you see. That's what's in the text. But there's another scene we see. We see it in verses 17 through 26. Let's follow this along. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees, teachers of the laws, were sitting there, and who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, let him down with his bed, threw the tiles into the midst before Jesus, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what had been lying on and went home, glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Uh, this, is a, this is a cool scene to me. I mean, there's, a, there's just a lot to unpack here. Luke sets the scene. He kind of wants us to get a sense of the atmosphere. There's a momentum of Jesus' ministry. He's attracting many people to him. He's also angering another group of religious leaders. And we're told about some Pharisees. Pharisees think in terms of like laypersons. They were laypersons, mostly non-priests. They were interested in a practical understanding of the law so the community could remain faithful to the covenant with God. They were kind of like lay leaders, for lack of a better word. But then we're also told about these scribes of the Pharisees, these teachers. They were literally law scholars. They were more learned interpreters of the law who helped, wanted people to apply it to their Jewish life. They rallied people to renewed obedience to the law. They were very strict. And they built fences to try to keep people with inside them so they would not violate God's laws and they would not violate what they taught God said and did not say. And so you have, as a part of these Pharisees, these scribes or teachers. Again, a little more learned, these law scholars. They're in the crowd. And then you get the enthusiasm of this crowd. you got all this momentum of ministry, people hearing he's healing, healed, probably surrounded by a lot of them who healed him, a lot who wanted to come to be healed. And so there's this sense of this enthusiasm of the crowds, but front and center is the power of God. Now let's consider this man. Let's see this man. We're introduced to a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed. Now he looks into a bright future, or bleak future, there are no neurosurgeons here. There are no specialists. No medical breakthroughs on the horizon. The life he has is now a horizontal one. Full of bed sores. How long does he stare at the ceiling? That's his life. His life has been reduced to a three-by-six mat. That's his life. That's his day. You thought you had trouble? You had hard times? That's his life. Three by six mat. He can't go anywhere without inconveniencing a lot of people. Day by day, week after week, month by month. Never able to rise and stretch with the morning sun. Never able to go socialize with his neighbor at will. Never able to look at scenery or watch kids play on the playground without inconveniencing a large number of people. Somebody else had to feed him, clothe him, bathe him. Dependency, confinement, despair, that's life on a three-by-six mat. But with all this difficulty, he's got one positive thing going for him. Friends. These are the kind of friends you want. Friends who will take you to Jesus. These are pretty cool friends. I like these guys. And, and we see some interesting things take place here one there's a crowded room it's so crowded these friends trying to get their friend this paralytic to jesus they can't 
The crowds are so numerous, he's probably outside the door, but his friends wouldn't give up. So his friends look and look around, and they notice the stairs out back going up to the roof. One of them has an idea, or maybe they just like, let's just go up there and see what happens. So they go up on the roof. I'll, I'll picture this. They got a, they're carrying this, this friend. They probably set him down like, well, let's just start move, removing tiles. Maybe we'll drop them. Maybe we could somehow, we'll get him down to Jesus. They probably figured, okay, he's probably right about here. They start taking tiles off the roof. Now imagine if you're in here listening to Jesus, all of a sudden debris, right? Dust starts falling. You look up, there's this light shining through. All of a sudden, a few more tiles. You see some faces peering over, trying to check out what's going on down there. And, uh, and you're like, what on earth is going on here? They're disturbing the whole event. Well, you look up and there's this light. All of a sudden, you see a bottom of a mat. They're lowering this guy down. Right at Jesus' feet. These are some pretty good friends. I mean, these guys aren't going to let any obstacles stop them. It's, to me, it's kind of almost like a crazy scene. But Jesus is transfixed, I'm sure, on the faces of these friends. Everyone else is looking at him. And, I, and the more I read that, I had to believe, while there are probably scowls in the room like you guys are interrupting all this, i got to believe Jesus smiled, right? What, I can see Jesus smiling going, this is pretty good. I like these guys. So he sees the friends peering over as they lower this mat. And so he sees, we know what he saw because the text tells us what he saw. He saw their faith. That's what he saw. Now we don't read that these guys said anything. We don't read any words they said. We don't read any words the guy on the mat spoke at first. But what we, he did see was their faith. Amazes to me. Again, what did he see? Well, he didn't see words. He just saw some guys putting a shoulder to their faith, lowering their friend down, willing to move through obstacles because they believed Jesus was able. Boy, we can learn from that. We really can. I mean, how often do you lift your friends up? Not, not up on a roof, but in prayer. And you do it because you believe he's able. You do it not as a secondary idea, but that's the first thing you do because you know deep down, if I can just get him to Jesus, he's able. Something's going to happen if I can just get him to Jesus. And they do. Jesus sees that faith. He sees these dirty faces hungering for a miracle. They tore, think about it, they tore up someone else's property. It's amazing. They tore up someone else's roof. They inconvenienced everybody there. You know who does stuff like that? Children. Right? Children will tear up everything. They'll inconvenience whatever event you have. And maybe that's a good description of these guys. They're like children. No wonder Jesus likes them because he likes childlike faith. That's exactly what's going on here. This is amazing. Would you do this? I mean, we're, let's be honest, sometimes we're, we're too proper. Well, I wouldn't do that. What would other people think or this or that? Man, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to go rip up someone's roof, but I, I got to be honest, if Jesus is down there and you got a friend you want to get to him, I, I hope that you care enough to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. That's what they, these guys do. I, I hope you have friends like this. 
Now, the one question right off the bat, you could say, what does this guy need? What's, what's his real need? And we would read it right away and say, well, it's to walk. That's what we would think. But that's not his real need. Because Jesus sees the great need. It's, it's not a physical paralysis. Jesus looks at him and sees a great need to be forgiven. He sees a crippled soul, paralyzed from sin and shame. That's what he sees. And he sees he needs to be released from the sin and shame so he could be forgiven. We know that because of the words he says to him. He says to the man, when he saw their faith, he says in verse 20, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, no one asked him to forgive his sin. I mean, the guys lowering him from the roof, they weren't, they weren't here for uh, sin or redemption. They were here if their friend could walk. But Jesus sees the real need. And he sees it in your life too. He sees the real need. And this man needed to be forgiven. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. Now, you would think everybody in the room would be really happy for this guy, right? I mean, the mercy brings release and peace to this man, but it brings a slap in the face of the religious crowd. When heaven rejoices, this group's taking mental notes, and they miss the party. They reason in their mind, okay, Jesus claims to forgive the power of sins. Only God can forgive sin. Wait a minute. Jesus is claiming to be God. It's precisely the point. They got it right. I mean, their, their factors, as they added them all together, came out to the right conclusion. But it didn't bring them to Christ. Now, verse 22 and 23, if we fly over it, we could miss something. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, don't, don't fly over that. He knew what they were thinking. He knows that can be unsettling, can a little bit? Let's be honest, I mean, there's times I really wish you didn't know what I was thinking or thought goes through your mind, you're like, oh, you know, I, I wish, wish that thought wasn't there, but he knows it. He perceived their thoughts. And he knows what's going on. And look at what he says. Jesus perceived their thought. He answers them, since he's answering their question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He answers them, he says, why do you question in your hearts? He asks the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Equally, each are equally difficult to say, probably, or easy to say, but they're equally impossible to do. Well, unless, of course, you're God. In that case, one is as easy as the other. And so Jesus, making sure that they don't look at him as a faith healer, type thing. He does what no mere mortal would do. He forgives the man's sins. No man would ever be able to claim to do that. Unfortunately, there's a mainline denomination that has priests that claim uh, to be able to forgive you of sins, but no man could forgive you of sins. Only God could in that sense, ultimately. And he does here. It almost seems like Jesus is nonchalant in this conversation with them with the religious leaders. And as, he, as the account goes on, after they deal with him and he puts them in their place, he says to the man, 
Oh, you're forgiven now, I say to you. Get up and walk. Ah, there's another little nugget in here that, I, that I, I, I just find interesting. Oh, don't forget your bed. I like that. Get up, walk. Oh, hey, you're, this old life you know, that used to exist on this three-by-six mat, you might want to take that home. You're probably not going to need it anymore. But, but take it home. I like that. Maybe as a reminder to him of the way life used to be. Life on a mat and now being released and healed, he goes home. I envision him, if I'm him, he danced home. He ran home. He jumped home. I mean, he exercised. He was probably, people probably looked at him like, wait a minute. He, that's the guy in the mat. Look at him now. He's dancing all over. At least that's what I would do. And so let's make sure we see what really happened here. The crowds did. The crowds in awe, verse 26, say, we have seen extraordinary things today. They weren't the only ones, so have we, this morning seen, I hope, extraordinary things. And as I close this up, I thought, how, do, how does what we see live out in a day-to-day? I mean, how can we sustain a big God mindset? How can we sustain a mindset that acts upon what we've seen this morning. There's three things that I hope, that, a whole lot more, but three things kind of surfaced. When God is willing, remember there's no area he cannot touch. It can be mental, physical, spiritual. I, I hope you can see that. And may, might the wonder that comes of, from it really draw you to intimate prayer. I think that's what wonder would do here. When God is willing, remember there's no area he cannot touch. Because God is powerful, remember there's no limit to his ability. You can't come up with a big enough prayer. There's no limit to his ability. And might your wonder at his power turn to praise? Might it turn you to praise him who's all-powerful? And number three, since God is to be glorified, remember that there's no reason for you and I to seek credit. It's all about him. Because as you look here, the paralytic, he never says anything like, hey, look what I did. Uh, The leper certainly didn't. Uh, They they praise God. And might you and I remember, since God is to be glorified, remember that there's no reason for you and I to seek to take credit. So might your wonder in this case lead you to a humble posture. Might you sing what we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. And might what we see cause us to have that posture. I hope you've seen a little better this morning. I hope that as you looked at Jesus, you were drawn to him such an incredibly wonderful, gracious Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we turn our eyes upon you. Thank you for all we see this morning as we look at you. Lord, we look full in your wonderful face. And may the things of earth, Lord, go strangely dim 
in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, we stand amazed at your mercy, your kindness, your power toward a leper, toward a a paralytic, and towards us. We bow and worship before you who came to restore and to redeem. Restore in us a wonder that would lead us to worship. Thank you for being such an incredibly gracious, wonderful, loving Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.